This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and immane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with fingers crossed everybody knows the war is over everybody knows the good guys lost everybody knows the fight was fixed the poor stay poor the rich get rich that's how it goes everybody From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Everybody knows that the days The Greeks say Christos Anasti, Christ is risen, Aletos Anasti, indeed he has risen. Happy Easter uh, to all of you who uh, mark this uh, occasion on the Christian calendar and for all of you who don't, uh, happy spring. What is that uh, poem we learned in school? Uh, let's see. Spring has sprung, the grasses riz, I wonder where the birdies is. What a glorious day it was. And uh, we had a, a wonderful time out at uh, my in-laws, and uh, my little guys got to play with their big cousins, Alex and Nikki, and uh, uh, wonderful food, wonderful uh, conversation. And uh, it's a time for family, uh, of, of course, as well. So let's um, briefly talk about what's uh, coming up next week on the show before we move on to tonight. And uh, that is a very interesting program, to be sure. We're going to speak with an American uh, film and video director, producer, musician uh, by the name of Kevin Booth. And uh, he has a couple of interesting documentaries we're going to talk about. American Drug War, The Last White Hope. We have met the enemy and it is our own government. And his uh, second film on the subject is How Weed Won the West. So uh, we'll look forward to that next week. That is Sunday, April the 11th. Kevin Booth will be uh, on the phone to talk about uh, this. And we should mention, actually, I'm not, I, don't want, I hate to put him on the spot here. Let me just uh, shoot the microphone. Would that be all right if I did that? Uh, Patrick White is uh, a good friend of the program, and uh, he and, and the lovely Kadena, uh, who operate... Conspiracy culture down on Queen Street, 1696 Queen Street, uh, popped in to say hello and to deliver these documentaries uh, to me um, in anticipation of next week's show. And they are also going to be presenting these, uh, or both of these films, at the Review Cinema. Uh, 
on the the 20th. Let me just, can I throw you on here very quickly? Patrick White. Good evening, listeners. Uh, okay, so I'm in control of the microphone. You can't see me, but uh, basically we're doing a film screening on Tuesday, April 20th at the Review Cinema in Toronto. American Drug War followed by How Weed Won the West. Uh, you can basically go to conspiracyculture.com and check out the website for all the details. And uh, again, happy Easter to all the listeners, and have a great evening. All right. I put him on the spot there. He thought he was just coming in to sit in and say hello. But uh, all right. So it is Easter, and it seems every Easter I find myself uh, discussing this next topic because I am so intrigued and, uh, dare I say, passionate, no pun intended, uh, about this most important relic Intriguing, mysterious, controversial. And of course, I am speaking about a, a piece of woven linen which has on it the uh, image of what appears to be a tortured, beaten, and crucified man. It's not painted on. Uh, it's, uh, some maintain it is a clever medieval forgery, perhaps even uh, created by Leonardo da Vinci. I don't happen to be one of those people who believe it's a medieval forgery, but we are going to delve into this piece of linen, the Shroud of Turin, and discuss whether or not it might be the actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ. And there is new scientific evidence, which we'll examine as well. And we're going to do that as we embark on tonight's show with Dr. Alan Wanger, who is a professor emeritus at Duke University Medical Center. And he and his wife, Mary, are, are really pioneers in the field of shroud research. They're the authors of The Shroud of Turin, An Adventure of Discovery. And several findings of uh, Mary and Alan Wanger uh, show the origin of the shroud images uh, to be from Israel in the spring of A.D. 30. Of course, placing it at the, uh, the moment of his crucifixion. And evidence for this includes the images of large numbers of flowers banked around the body. The Wangers have identified 28 species, 20 of which grow in Jerusalem, and the other eight within 12 miles of Jerusalem with a common blooming time of March and April. The pollens of 25 of these have been independently identified by Dr. Max Fry, a Swiss criminalist and botanist, and uh, he's identified them as being present on the shroud, from sticky tape samples that he took in 1973 and 1978. Visible over each eye are detailed images of two different leptin coins of Pontius Pilate, each dated A.D. 29. And some statues in the Middle East are based on the shroud face image, the earliest dated A.D. 31. This is just a little bit of the information that uh, we'll discuss tonight, but there is uh, a great deal of uh, scientific evidence to wade through, and we'll get to that right now. First of all, let's welcome Dr. Alan Wanger to The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Dr. Wanger. Yes, uh, good evening. It's a pleasure to be with you, especially on this Resurrection Sunday. When did you first uh, become uh, fascinated by this relic? Actually, I'd never heard of the Shroud until 1977, uh, that is that uh, I should have. Uh, that is that uh, I had been a student at Duke University for 13 years and, and various levels and never heard of it. 
Uh, actually, I started to write a book at age 15 and a half entitled The Scientific Disproval of God. And in that research, well, I never came across a, a reference uh, to the shroud. You know, I, I found I couldn't uh, scientific, scientifically disprove God, so I burned the manuscript and decided to better join him. But uh, still, I'd never heard of the shroud until I happened to pick up a book in a bookstore in 1977 with a photograph of the shroud on the cover, and that immediately intrigued me. Uh, photography is my main hobby, and uh, this uh, photograph just uh, just has a, a special quality to it, which uh, attracted my attention. Well, uh, when I say our, my, my wife was in the same bookstore with me, and it attracted her attention, too. Now, if you were to actually uh, go to uh, St. John the Baptist uh, Cathedral in Turin, Italy, and uh, on those rare occasions when the shroud is uh, available for public viewing... If you were to stand up close to it, you really wouldn't be able to tell what you were looking at, would you? Uh, well, uh, you would have a difficulty uh, distinguishing some of the details very close. Uh, I've been fortunate uh, to have uh, seen the shroud on eight different occasions, which is uh, far more than um, the most you know, have, and I've been within a foot of it, but um, that's that the image is very faint. And it's a rather indistinct outline. And if you're very close to it, it's hard to distinguish many of the features of it. And for those who are not intimately familiar with the shroud, could you give us a, a, a thumbnail sketch of, of what we're talking about? I mean, I mentioned it's a, it's, a, it's a piece of linen, but can you give us the dimensions and, and basically what is supposed to be on the shroud? Yes, right. The shroud is a piece of what's called fine linen, uh, that is at 14 feet 3 inches long by 3 feet 7 inches wide. And, uh, and on it, which of course is what's intrigued people, is the front and back image of a crucified uh, a male. And uh, this is the, um, there's, there are a number of other things you'd see if you just look at the shroud. In the 1532, uh, someone was trying to get rid of it uh, and set fire to the cathedral that was in at the time. The fire melted one corner of the silver boxes folded up and it dripped molten silver down to the folded shroud. And so it produced uh, scorch marks the full length of it as well as burned a number of holes through it. And this will become important later when we get into the uh, the radiocarbon dating, but um, uh, the, the, the scorch marks. But for now, okay, so there are scorch marks on it. Um, what else? Right. Well, there's, there are also uh, water stains uh, on it. Um, looking more closely at the important part of it, uh, of course, it is, is the the image, and uh, there are bloodstains uh, on the shroud as well. Have we been able to categorically determine that those are bloodstains and not uh, uh, paint? Uh, yes, right. There's been a, a rather extensive test by a number of experts uh, on the blood on the shroud, and uh, there's uh, no doubt that it's uh, human blood. It types out a type AB. It's not, not been uh, further uh, categorized, but uh, it's definitely human blood. To me, what would be most fascinating, uh, Dr. Wanger, and I don't know if this is possible because um, we, we would be talking about blood samples that would be on the order of 2,000 years old if, in fact, the shroud dates uh, to that period. Uh, if we were able to do a DNA test on the, uh, the blood cells... Uh, the mitochondrial uh, DNA would reveal, uh, presumably, a, a woman of um, uh, uh, Hebrew uh, descent. But the nuclear DNA, this to me would be very fascinating, because the nuclear DNA uh, 
which would determine the the, the father's uh, lineage would have to be uh, of undetermined origin because, of course, Jesus Christ's father was God. Uh, he, he did not have a human father. Um, is that possible that we could test, we could do a DNA test on the blood samples? Uh, well, supposedly a number of uh, DNA tests have been done uh, on it. None of these were authorized, however, and uh, they were on, uh, you know, uh, uh, specimens of uncertain origin. And they came up with a variety of results, including a female uh, uh, blood and, uh, you know, a variety of uh, male, uh, you know, uh, types and so forth. But uh, since uh, these were none of these were were authorized, and there obviously is, is such a wide variety, uh, as that the authorities in turn just said they they won't accept, uh, accept any of the results because uh, you know we really uh, don't know. There's so little uh, uh, DNA, uh, DNA uh, on the shroud that it's very difficult to do any testing on that, as DNA deteriorates uh, fairly quickly after the death of the cells. All right, Dr. Alan Wanger is with us from the Council for Study of the Shroud of Turin. And uh, we'll be back as we continue to examine this most remarkable Christian relic. Is it a clever medieval forgery, or is it, in fact, the actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ? This is the online poll at richardserrett.com. And uh, thus far, the results are... Let me see if I can get you those. It's a 38% say no, it's a clever medieval forgery, and 15%, 15.28%, my apologies, 71.7% say it's a clever medieval forgery, 28.3% say it, yes, it is the actual burial cloth, and contains evidence of his resurrection. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. The Shroud of Turin is a centuries-old linen cloth that bears the image of a crucified man, a man that millions believe to be Jesus of Nazareth. Is it really the cloth that wrapped his crucified body, or is it simply a medieval forgery, a hoax perpetrated by some clever artist? Modern science has uh, completed hundreds of thousands of hours of detailed study and intense research on the shroud. It is, in fact, the single most studied artifact in human history. We know more about it today than we ever have before, and yet the controversy still rages. Dr. Alan Wanger is uh, with us. He is with the Council for Study of the Shroud of uh, Turin, and uh, he and his wife, Mary, are the authors of The Shroud of Turin, An Adventure of Discovery. Uh, now, which uh, uh, gospel is the uh, the shroud uh, mentioned? Is it, is, I believe it's only in one, is it not, uh, Dr. No, Wanger? Actually, the shroud is mentioned in all four of them. Oh, it gospels. is all four. Okay. Yes, right. That, that is that the one we usually refer to is a, a John. Uh, there's a twentieth chapter of John, which uh, describes the uh, you know uh, the uh, the finding of it in uh, in much more detail, and uh, it gives some important uh, clues, which uh, have been uh, very useful in our research. As it, it mentions uh, that uh, well, the, 
uh, Peter and uh, John uh, came to the tomb, and uh, 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 Peter saw the linen wrappings uh, when he just peeked in, and the face cloth which had been on his head uh, rolled up in the place by itself. And then it says the other disciple, as John, who had first come to the tomb, entered then also, and he saw and believed. As the word saw there means to study something very carefully. Uh, a lot of people say, well, he believed because the tomb was empty. But, of course, you know, the previous sentence said that the tomb was not empty. The, the shroud was there. And it's our contention that uh, John went over and uh, lifted up the shroud and saw the image of the individual that he had just buried there a couple of days before. And while John was no scientist, he certainly knew that uh, you know, something rather extraordinary had happened sufficient to cause him to become a believer in the tomb. Now, uh, this uh, a type of, of, of uh, Jewish burial, uh, wrapping the body in a, uh, a linen uh, shroud and, and placing it in a tomb, uh, anointing the, uh, the body with uh, oil and, and uh, you know, placing uh, flowers around the body, etc., uh, this is very specific to a particular time in, in, in uh, Jewish history, from what I understand, because uh, when I think of a uh, sort of an ancient Jewish burial, I think of uh, bones being placed in an ossuary. Well, uh, actually, those that they, they were. Uh, but the, the procedure was that the body would, would be uh, put in the, in the tomb, and uh, the body allowed to decay. That's that they, while they would, uh, you know, use the spices and so forth. This was not to embalm the body. That is that they, they felt that the body should be allowed to decay. And then uh, after a year, they would come back and gather up the bones and put them, uh, you know, in a little ossuary of uh, an individual box, or else in a, in family tombs, they often had sort of a box in common that they would put the bones in. Uh, now, so that, oh, sorry. Continue, Doctor Wenger. Pardon? Yes, I'm sorry, I interrupted. Continue. Okay, uh, fine. So that the uh, the uh, this the uh, shroud is not quite a, a typical burial. Uh, of course, as part of the problem is they they had only uh, probably uh, two hours or less to get the body in the tomb and the tomb closed because uh, the uh, the uh, the Sabbath was approaching. This was a high Sabbath as it was uh, during uh, the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so they had to have the body in the tomb and the tomb sealed by sundown. And uh, so that they, they weren't able uh, to complete all the, the burial procedures that they would have undertaken. And that's why the women were coming back to the tomb on Sunday morning. That's right. They were confronted by the Roman soldiers and uh, they said, we, we've come to anoint the body. And they were told, well, why didn't you do that, you know, when, when you brought him here? And they said, we couldn't. Uh, you know, we couldn't buy anything. Well, actually, that doesn't mention the Roman soldiers. As that the Romans, as that uh, what what happened to Roman soldiers, whether they uh, uh, you know kind of were frightened away or, or what, we're not quite sure. But uh, so when the women got there, well, the the tomb was open. That's the the stone had been rolled back, and uh, I think that they appeared in, in the tomb and saw that the body was gone. And then they ran to, to tell John and Peter that someone had stolen the body. Now, what what has happened? What happened to the shroud uh, uh, through history before it arrives at the uh, the cathedral in Turin? Uh, take us from the the tomb uh, in uh, Jerusalem, uh, and and what happens to the shroud from there till its arrival in uh, Turin, Italy? All right, fine. Well, uh, this is the. Uh, is it. We we don't know exactly. We have to make some supposition, but we I think we can tell fairly well 
uh, that is that uh, after uh, John saw and believed, uh, they, uh, you, know, you know, they were of course uh, rather overwhelmed by the implications of this. And then they, at uh, verse ten of uh, that chapter, says, "So the disciples went away again to their own homes." Uh, we think that uh, they that wasn't just they were disinterested. We we think that they they picked up the shroud and all the other objects that were in the tomb and took them along with them, uh, so that the um, because the uh, uh, while the body was gone, as that they they had the shroud, they uh, uh, all, all the implements of the crucifixion were put inside the shroud or inside the tomb along with the body, and. Uh, they would certainly want to save these because while they had no body, they they had the objects that had the blood of Christ uh, on it. Uh, certainly, the nails, the spear of Longines. Uh, yes, right. Uh, the the spear, the the hammer, the the nails, the the, the tongs. Uh, does it? Uh, the, all these implements, uh, they're actually imaged on the shroud. That's and, remarkable. Uh, so that they, they, of course, uh, you know, <laughs> would not been resurrected. But uh, they they had the life what they call the life blood on it, and uh, the uh, the uh, Jewish uh, custom uh, was is that uh, the uh, the life blood was considered to be part of the body, and so that uh, that would be buried along with the body. In the in the case of crucifixion individuals, uh, as you know, I mentioned uh, previously that the soldiers gambled uh, for for the for the tunic. Uh, the the reason for that is that the uh, the objects uh, that belonged to the crucified individual, whose body was probably thrown, you know, in, in the in the garbage heap or a common grave, uh, the the clothes would be sold to the family, so the family would at least bury the bloody clothes, uh, and uh, so that, that 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 was important. And we think the disciples uh, carried uh, the shroud, which of course had had this remarkable image on it, and had had the blood of Jesus on it, and all the other objects are back to their home. We we think that this was uh, to, uh, of course, you know, this was uh, uh, all they had. They thought of the of uh, Jesus, and uh, it was uh, of extraordinary importance that so they wanted to keep them out of the hands of the Roman soldiers who might be coming back, <laughs> trying to figure out, you know, what happened here, uh, or to keep it out of the hands of uh, uh, you know grave robbers. All right, and from there, uh, the 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 shroud uh, turns up where next? Okay, fine. That's it. it turned up in, in the city of Edessa, uh, which was uh, the the capital of a small uh, country called Osirene, uh, which was about 400 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, there's a very interesting uh, uh, history uh, here. That's it's, it's recorded in uh, uh, Eusebius, who is the uh, church historian who wrote the history of the Christian Church in, in about 325. Eusebius uh, went to Edessa. And uh, you know, read their city records, and so he, he has a whole chapter in his book on uh, on the uh, the uh, incident of uh, Thaddeus, who was probably Judas the Zealot, uh, carrying this object up to Abgar. Well, uh, Abgar, the, the king, uh, had leprosy, and of course, back at that time, leprosy was probably worse than death. And uh, in uh, Abgar's uh, physicians weren't doing much for him, so that. Uh, uh, Abgar contacted Jesus. There's, in many of the Orthodox churches in the Middle East, they have copies of the reputed correspondence between Abgar and Jesus, with uh, uh, Abgar sending a letter inviting Jesus to come up uh, to Odessa to heal him, and uh, a reputed letter from Jesus back to Abgar saying that he, Jesus, had to finish his work in Israel, but he had sent one of his disciples up. 
And so that, uh, you know, this uh, uh, the disciple that went up was uh, Thaddeus, or, you know, who was uh, probably Jewish a zealot. And uh, interestingly, and uh, this has uh, got something to do with our, our dating, uh, that's that uh, this uh, particular work is dated. And uh, Eusebius puts a date down that this was uh, recorded in 30 A.D., Ah, so in other words, Jesus obviously uh, couldn't come up uh, to to heal uh, because he had been crucified. So they sent the the shroud up because it had somewhat miraculous healing properties. Uh, well, it, it had the it had the image of Jesus on it, and so that they uh, you know that is that they uh, this would uh, been a, a good place in sense to send the shroud because uh, the disciples knew they had to get it out of Jerusalem because uh, I mean with this image of this. <laughs> This Jesus that both the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities were trying to get rid of, uh, if they would have been able to get this, um, you know, evidence that Jesus had uh, come back to life, uh, they they would have immediately destroyed it. All right, listen, we'll uh, take a time out, Dr. Wanger. On the other side, we'll pick up on the trail of the Shroud of Turn throughout history as we uh, discuss this most remarkable Christian relic. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Dr. Alan Wanger is here as we continue to discuss the Shroud of Turin. Now, uh, Dr. Wanger, when the Shroud was in Odessa, that, at that point it was known as the Mendelian, was it not? Uh, that was one of the names uh, given to it. As uh, we have evidence, and uh, you know, even from full marks on the shroud, that the disciples folded up, folded the shroud up in eight thicknesses, and when you do this, uh, only the face shows. And uh, so, that, you know, of course, says that the the shroud itself. I mean, it's a great uh, long piece of uh, linen, uh, but they would fold fold it up. Of course, says that the face was the important part. But at the time, it was felt that the the power of a god was in the face. And, uh, and so that this was both a convenient way to, to reduce it to manageable size as well as to leave the face exposed. And uh, we, we think that uh, this, uh, you know, uh, we, we think they mounted it uh, in, a, in a frame. Uh, we, we think they probably put it in a, uh, in a cloth envelope with the, with the uh, face showing, mounted it in a frame. And that was called a Mandelian. Okay, and then so from Odessa... Um... If memory serves, it was uh, it was sort of hidden in a stone wall surrounding the city or some such place. Where does it go from there? Uh, well, uh, right. There's, uh, what happened was that uh, uh, Abgar was miraculously healed of his leprosy, and so that uh, uh, he uh, Odessa was uh, it's a very rather advanced city. It was a walled city on the trade routes from the far east to the Mediterranean, and uh, all of the walled cities had a, a, a statue of the city god or goddess outside the city main city gate that uh, everyone coming to the city had to stop and worship at this image. Well, Abgar went out and smashed up uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, statue of the uh, city goddess and copied of, uh, the shroud face on a tile and mounted it up above the main city gate of Edessa uh, with the inscription over Christ the God, he who trusts in him will not be disappointed. And so that uh, all the travelers and caravanners and, uh, that, that came into Edessa starting in 30 A.D. had to stop and worship this image of Jesus uh, <laughs> over the main city gate. Uh, so that the the image became very widely known, you know, you know, in the er- very early years. Which again uh, uh, is a way of dating the shroud because 
artistic renderings were based on the image of the shroud. So if we have an artistic rendering that can be dated to the first century AD, then obviously we know that the shroud existed at that time, and it was not created in the Middle Ages. Exactly. This is, uh, this is very important. And uh, we, we can actually date it pretty sharply, because uh, there's my wife and I, we've studied uh, hundreds of the early icons and uh, you know, images you know, in, in that part of the world. And uh, there's a very interesting one uh, from a place called Dura Ropus, which was uh, you know, fairly close to Edessa. It was culturally related closely to Edessa. Uh, but uh, there was a... Uh, some artwork was excavated uh, from there in uh, in the uh, 1930s, and including uh, a statue of uh, Zeus Curios, or you know, who was uh, one of the pagan gods. But this was the, the first uh, artwork in which, which showed the characteristic of what's called frontality in art. Uh, ordinarily, the gods and uh, rulers were depicted in profile, but all of a sudden, uh, here's a Zeus Curios. In a full frontality, with with uh, with beard, wide staring eyes, uh, you know, looking very much like this had been uh, impacted by the shroud, and we think that indeed it had. And this particular uh, piece of art, which is, happens to be in the Yale Art Gallery, since they were in the ex- one of the excavators, but um, anyway, this uh, this, this uh, artwork is uh, dated on the statuary to 31 A.D. And so we feel that uh, by 31 A.D., the uh, the shroud image had had an impact on the artwork, you know, depiction of divinities in the Middle East. So obviously, uh, uh, people were were well aware of the existence of the Mendelian or the Shroud of Turin or the Veil of uh, Odessa, whatever uh, name you want to go by, uh, at that time. Uh, so how did it end up? in, in uh, St. John the Baptist Cathedral in Turin, Italy. Okay, well, fine. Well, uh, ac- actually, that's the, uh, the successor to Abgar. Abgar died in 55 A.D. Uh, the successor was a pagan who began uh, suppressing the, the Christians. As uh, Abgar declared his city to be uh, a Christian. And so that, uh, you know, that was, uh, you know, there was a, uh, a massive uh, conversion uh, because of the, uh, of the image on the shroud. But uh, that's that the, the successor was a pagan who began persecuting the Christians. So in order to, to uh, preserve the, the uh, images and the, and the Mandelian, it was hidden away. But uh, they, they lost it. I'm, I'm sure that the people who hid it were probably killed off in the persecutions. And so uh, uh, the location was unknown to about 525, at which time uh, Odessa suffered uh, fairly massive flooding and uh, destroyed about a third of the city. Uh, Odessa was uh, become part of the Byzantine Empire by that time, so they sent down uh, work teams from Constantinople to help in the repair process, and they found up above the main city gate a niche in the wall which had the, the Mandelian and this uh, this tile copy uh, in it. Well, they, they immediately knew <laughs> what it was because this had been responsible for the conversion of their city. And so they, they built uh, the uh, a cathedral as uh, the uh, second largest in, in the in the Middle East, uh, to simply to house the shroud, uh, well, it was the you know the the Mandelian, the this facial image, and so it uh, it was a uh, it was widely uh, you know it, it was property of the royal royalty at that time, but the the image was very well known and it was uh, worshipped periodically, and it stayed in Odessa actually until uh, 944. Uh, at that time, excuse me. Odessa had fallen into Muslim hands, 
And uh, the as the final act of Romanus II, the, the the emperor of the Byzantine Empire, was uh, to to get this image to, over to Constantinople. So he sent an army of uh, twelve thousand men, uh, three hundred miles into Muslim territory, simply to lay siege to Edessa for the sole purpose of getting this image. So you know, obviously the image was well known and highly prized. <laughs> So finally, after six months of siege, the Edessans uh, you know, gave up uh, the, the image and was taken to Constantinople and uh, was uh, entered into Constantinople in uh, pomp and circumstance and actually put on the royal throne in uh, Constantinople. It uh, stayed there uh, up until 1204, at which time the Fourth Crusade, and instead of going down and uh, freeing Jerusalem from the Muslim control, uh, uh, lay siege to Edessa. They sacked Constantinople. Which was the uh, you know the capital of the Byzantine Christian Empire, and uh, they uh, they ran off with most of the uh, the relics uh, in Constantinople, including the shroud, and uh, so it, it disappeared uh, from 1204 and then resurfaced in France in uh, 1356. We have good evidence, and some is uh, you know was just you know, verified by some documentation found just within the past year or so, is that it was in the hands of the Knights Templars or an international group of uh, you know um, military monks uh, and uh, were a, an international extremely wealthy group and so that they they had obviously had the shroud and uh, uh, used it as uh, you know the center part of the worship of the of the knights and uh, then uh, they in in order to uh, to get the treasures uh, of the knights templars uh, the king of France Philip the Fair in uh, 1307 uh, you know, seized uh, the uh, the headquarters of the Knights Templars in Paris, uh, you know, and you know, and killed off the, their leaders. Uh, and we, we think that there's evidence that the, the uh, Knights Templars knew knew what was coming, and uh, so had to sent their shroud off to England to one of the Knights Templars' uh, headquarters over there. So we we think there's evidence that that was probably in England for a short period of time, and then was uh, transported by uh, one of the. Um, people associated with the Knights Templars uh, back to France where it was uh, put on public display. All right, listen, before we uh, pick up uh, from there on the uh, the travels of this much-traveled uh, piece of linen, let's go to the phones and welcome Michael to the Conspiracy Show here on AM740 in Toronto. Michael, welcome. Yes, uh, good evening, Richard, and to the guest, I forget his name now. but Dr. Alan Wanger. Uh, Robin, Robin Wagner. Yeah, no, no, I'm just listening the past few minutes uh, talking about the history of the Shroud and all these places that it went to. Well, anyway, uh, <clears throat> my question really is, then how come nobody knows today exactly where uh, Jesus was buried? Now, they have, you know, Easter services at the Church of the... Holy, Holy Sepulchre, Sepul- yes. And three years ago... If you remember, there was this strange study that they found the evidence of uh, Jesus' DNA, but they checked it out at, up in Thunder Bay, but uh, nothing was proven from that study. All right, the uh, the empty tomb. Well, I mean, the the Orthodox uh, Church and the, and the Catholic Church are quite certain that it is the the, the tomb is located in the uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, although there are, there are sort of alternate sites. Uh, Dr. Wanger, did you have any comment on, on that, the location of his tomb? 
that's what, uh, I, I would agree with the, the general uh, con- conclusion that uh, the, the tomb was at the site, uh, in, it's, uh, which is now in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. That's, uh, it doesn't look like the original doll because the, the, uh, well, the, the church and the tomb have been destroyed on a number of occasions. So, of course, it's been rebuilt and doesn't uh, <laughs> you know, resemble what it looked like originally. That the garden tomb is, uh, you know, in the Jerusalem is the second uh, choice, and uh, that that is a very picturesque uh, area, and uh, probably gives an idea of what it was like originally. But uh, we, we think that uh, re- recent studies, including uh, uh, subsurface radar and so forth, which picks up, uh, you know, very early structures there, uh, would indicate that it probably was uh, indeed uh, in the, the site of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Michael, thank you for the call. Uh, Again, on the tomb, uh, Dr. Wenger. Now, the tomb reportedly belonged to uh, the family of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, uh, he was, uh, was he not an uncle of, uh, of Jesus? Uh, I, I'm not sure uh, that, uh, you spent, uh, I've heard that speculation. I'm not sure what the family connection would be. Uh, actually, that is that the, it, um, uh, the, uh, it says that he was laid in a new tomb. So this was actually, in a sense, not a family tomb because that there had been no no family buried there. And, and the, of course, says that the uh, the the rule was that uh, if a crucified individual was put in a tomb, no one else could be put in that tomb. It was considered defiled. Pardon? Was it considered defiled if a crucified person had been placed there? Uh, yes, right. It was defiled. Interesting. And, uh, so that uh, what we speculate. It is that uh, Joseph Arimathea was, was probably a confidant of Jesus who told him ahead of time of what was going to happen. And uh, so that uh, we suspect uh, that probably Joseph uh, had a new tomb carved out specifically uh, for, for Jesus, uh, knowing ahead of time, because, uh, you know, he, he brought the, the linen shroud, which uh, is an extraordinary piece of fabric. That is that, uh, this is, um, in Scripture, fine linen is ordinarily associated with gold and silver. And at the time of Jesus, fine linen, which the shroud is, in Israel was used only for two purposes. And this is the hangings in the temple and the robe of the high priest. So, so this is, uh, you know, this is an extraordinary piece of uh, fabric. And uh, it would require a very rich man, which Joseph was, uh, to procure this. And it would take probably take a while to, to secure it. And, and so that we, we think Joseph knew ahead of time uh, that that was coming. Interestingly... Uh, in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, there's another tomb called the, the Tomb of, of Joseph of Arimathea, which is uh, about, oh, probably 150 feet away from the where the other tomb is, uh, which looks very much like a, a first-century uh, you know, cave tomb. Interesting, interesting. And, and uh, which has the, you know, the, the usual the niches and this sort of thing, put multiple family members in and so forth. Right. Um, how did the... Uh, the we, we, we sort of left off with the shroud in the, the 16th century when it was on display in France. And um, one of the theories has always been that the image of the shroud uh, was, in fact, uh, Jacques, de, uh, Jacques de Molière. How did that uh, uh, rumor get started? And is there any uh, credence to that story? Uh, I'm sorry, uh, that, uh, uh, the, uh, the Jacques... Uh, Jacques the, de Molière, he was, uh, was he not a, uh, a member of the, of the Templars, the Templar Knights? Oh, oh uh, right. Okay, well, of course, there's, there are a number of stories that have uh, come up, you know, uh, since the, 
uh, you know, uh, the, the the course of the shroud and the possession was uh, was often kind of semi-secret, and a lot of explanations uh, came up. That's that the uh, we we think that uh, that the, the the person who brought it back from England uh, was was uh, related uh, to one of the Knights Templars, and uh, the, he was uh, actually he was the um, the uh, the um, uh, emblem bearer for the king, and the English captured him. Uh, and uh, took him to England, but uh, you know the King of France ransomed him, him and uh, we suspect that he probably brought the shroud back to, to France uh, with him. All right, yes, uh, Jacques de Molay, he was the um, the Grand Master of the Knights Templar. Uh, the, uh, yes, yeah. right. Okay. So that uh, we we don't don't think that uh, you know de Molay, well, he was probably in charge of it, but uh, that's that they. Uh, the, the Knights Templars, uh, the, the reward for, you know, for particularly brave knights and so forth, was they, they'd be allowed to see uh, the Holy Grail. As, uh, they, you know, the, the, the Grail, what was referred to as the Grail, was uh, the, uh, the thing that uh, was uh, sort of the ultimate reward for the Knights Templars. Uh, the, the earliest descriptions of the Grail uh, were that it was a flat object that had the, uh, the image of Christ in the bottom of it. And uh, we think that was the description of the Mandillion, uh, which the Knights Templars had, and that uh, the, Wait, the let me just stop you there. This is this is important. Let me just view and to kiss this image. Let me just stop you there. This is very significant. You're say, saying that the legend of the Holy Grail is in fact one and the same as the Shroud of Turin. Exactly. Yes. Right. Well, this is a uh, you know the a Grail may re- may refer to to uh, rather than a, a cup. May refer to the grill work that was uh, probably over the the front part of the mandillion. We we, we think that uh, you know it was it was uh, covered with kind of a uh, you know a fabric grill work, and uh, we think that that's probably what it's referring to. That's remarkable. All right, uh, Dr. Alan Wanger is with us as we discuss the Shroud of Turin here on the Conspiracy Show, AM seven forty. Let's uh, I guess we'll take a quick break. And uh, we'll come back, we'll get, we'll get to, to some more calls and continue to delve into this most significant relic here on Easter Sunday. Passcodes, personal identification numbers, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740. Or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Dr. Alan Wanger is uh, with us. We're discussing the Shroud of Turin. And uh, he and his uh, wife Mary are the authors of The Shroud of Turin, an an adventure of discovery. Available at Amazon.com. Let's go back to the phones, and we'll welcome Fred in Whitby. Good evening, Fred. Hi, how are you doing? Well, thank you. Uh, I just was wondering, uh, is there any indication of when Jesus would return? You mean on the shroud itself? Uh, uh, When he was uh, resurrected? No, when he'll come back. Oh uh, well, uh, that is that the uh, I, uh, well we don't have definitely that is that uh, our our contention is that uh, you know this uh, this image which is a extremely complex radiation image was uh, it was quite deliberately designed as uh, you know it's no artistic uh, artwork at all it's totally irre- 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 reproducible 
and uh, so that the uh, you know we 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 think that uh, that Jesus quite deliberately left this as a witness uh, to the you know to his followers, and uh, which was a assurance that he was uh, you know was resurrected. And uh, you know, with a promise to return, he didn't say when, and I don't know that the the shroud uh, gives us uh, you know an exact date on that. Uh, other than that, you know, it's it's becoming much more widely known now, which uh, we of course is uh, you know what uh, what we think it was left for. All right, uh, Fred and Whitby, thank you for that. Let's let's go back to the actual image on the shroud, and and um, we didn't really fully uh, understand the the detail. Uh, and the evidence of uh, what this image was until the the latter half of the 19th century when a photographer by the name of Seconda Pia uh, happened to take a, 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 a photograph of the shroud. So explain the significance of Seconda Pia's photograph and, and what was revealed during that time. All right, fine. Well, that was the, the first occasion for it being photographed, 1898. It was out for a public dis- uh, display then, and uh, so that uh, you know, he was astonished when he developed as a negative to see he had a positive image. As in other words, the image on the shroud has characteristics of a photographic negative. This is one of the reasons it looks so peculiar when you when you look at it. It doesn't look like we normally uh, see people. But if you uh, take a photograph and look at the negative of that, well, it uh, snaps into very sharp detail uh, that uh, we're we're dealing with a uh, with a very human form that uh, has been through. Uh, some pretty awful torture and crucifixion. So, in other words, the image on the shroud is a negative, much the same as an X-ray. Uh, well, uh, not not quite like an X-ray. It's like a photographic negative. Okay. That's uh, interestingly, that's that there. Uh, it is uh, also an X-ray in in that. Uh, we, we've uh, been able to identify uh, the multiple bones. This is the bones in the hands, the wrist, uh, the uh, the the skull bones uh, ac- actually the twenty four teeth uh, roots and all are visible on the shroud, so it, so it's in part uh, a uh, you know what we call an auto radiograph or that's a, it's a radiation image, a radiation image. So if if it was in fact a forgery or a hoax, uh, and let's assume that it was uh, uh, designed in the Middle Ages, that that individual a group of individuals first would have had to have had knowledge of uh, a, a photographic negative image hundreds of years before the, the actual invention of photography. They would also have to be experts in anatomy uh, in order to, to have the bone structure uh, down correct. Uh, uh, anatomy, physiology, as we'll learn a little later, botany. Um, I mean, they, they would have had to have, have had more knowledge than they possibly could have during that time. Uh, yes, well, of course. That is that they. Um, that is that their number. <laughs> that we uh, we say that the shroud is good news for for most people, but it's bad news for some people. And uh, some of those for whom it's bad news have been uh, rather desperate to try to debunk it. I mean, they've been trying to get rid of it one way or another uh, uh, for two thousand years now. And, uh, you know, trying to label it as a medieval artistic production of some sort is uh, one of the ways they do that. Do I have to recognize is that uh, there were many, uh, uh, you know, copies made of the Shroud in the Middle Ages. Uh, there, there are at least uh, 55 what they call true copies that were made of the Shroud. Uh, that's that, uh, these were painted copies, uh, which were many of them life-size. 
which were then laid down directly on top of the shroud, uh, which was uh, felt to transmit the part of the uh, the sanctity of the original to the copy. So these were called true copies. So that there were a lot of these circulating, but um, you know that uh, <laughs> there was an original that they were copies of. And uh, there is no explanation. I mean, I know that you have one, but in terms of the scientific analysis of the shroud, there's no explanation for for how the image got there. It's definitely not paint. We can rule that out, correct? Uh, absolutely. There's no dye pigment stain or anything of the sort. The The image is just on the bare surface of, of the fibrils of, of the threads. That's doing, the image is only five thousandths of an inch thick. And, uh, you know, it's it, it has characteristics uh, both of X-radiation and as well as what's called electrostatic uh, radiation, you know, which is a surface radiation. And, uh, you know, to uh, to assume that uh, this was known in the Middle Ages is absolutely ridiculous. Um, that is a, uh, the, our study of the artwork has uh, uh, also indicated this. these medieval ideas are, are nonsensical in that uh, they're, uh, you know, we, we cited the, the first artwork that we detected, which was 31 A.D. Uh, there's another uh, artistic uh, copy in, in, the, in the Middle East. Uh, dated 54 A.D., which is obviously based on the shroud, uh, and the the earliest depictions of Buddha. That suddenly Buddha started uh, being depicted in human form. Uh, this uh, happened in Ganhara, India, about 125 A.D. You're saying and, that the legend of Buddha, in fact, was created uh, from the shroud. Exactly. That's that they. Well, the Buddha was never depicted in human form. Uh, Gautama died in the fifth. Well, lived in the fifth and sixth century B.C. But since uh, you know the object was to uh, uh, go into nirvana or state of non-being, was the uh, Buddha was never depicted in human form. There's a, they would just depict, the, say, the the bow tree or footprints or something to indicate Buddha. But all of a sudden, here Buddha appears in human form, and uh, with the the face of guess who that hadn't been. Jesus on the Shroud of Turin face. That's remarkable. That is uh, new information uh, for me and. Um... I just find that absolutely astounding. All right, back with more of The Shroud of Turin here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Recently, a computer-generated image of uh, Jesus' face was revealed on the History Channel, uh, and this was uh, based on the Shroud of Turin, which um, leads me to a uh, to this area of inquiry, uh, Dr. Wanger. I had a, a lunch recently with um, a good friend of mine who's a regular contributor to the program. He's a, he happens to be a Christian, Nelson Thal. Uh, now, Nelson doesn't believe that the image on the, the shroud is uh, that of Jesus Christ because he maintains that um, Jesus would never have allowed his, his image to be recorded, that that somehow would be um, uh, profane, you know, that, it, you know, graven images of, uh, of we, we, we must never worship graven images of, uh, you know, of, of, of God or of a God, etc. Uh, does that make any sense to you? Uh, well, there's a, a number of people have had uh, uh, problems uh, with that. 
that is that uh, of course says that the the, the Jews you know I mean uh, the Old Testament uh, you know, taught uh, you know not to worship uh, you know the graven images. Of course, this is not a graven image. Uh, this is <laughs> this is a radiation uh, image. Although it uh, stirred up a you know say a good bit of controversy. Uh, our uh, our approach is that um, you know that the uh, the image was uh, left uh, for for the the doubting Thomases uh, of the <laughs> of the subsequent ages. That's because uh, you know in the, in the same uh, chapter twenty of John. Uh, it records uh, that's that the one of the disciples by the name of uh, Thomas had some problem. He wanted to see evidence, and uh, so that Jesus didn't zap him or you know or, or ridicule him or anything sort. He said, "Look, uh, here, here it is. You put your finger in." So that uh, we, we think that uh, that Jesus uh, you know quite explicitly demonstrated uh, his uh, his reality, uh, you know, uh, to Thomas. But we think that the the shroud was uh, uh, created by Jesus for the same purpose. All right, uh, we, we can't put our finger in, but we can certainly see uh, where the wounds were, uh, where, where Jesus invited Thomas to put fingers in. Here's the other uh, uh, point that uh, Nelson made, and, and I, quite frankly, didn't have an answer for this one. I mean, I happen uh, to believe that the, the, the image on the shroud is that of, 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 of Jesus Christ. I just think that the, the evidence is overwhelming. But here's an interesting point. Um, uh, Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, uh, it talks about uh, if a man has long hair, it is a it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has uh, long hair, it is a glory for her. In other words, uh, it, it was not acceptable uh, for Hebrews at the time, living in the time of Jesus, to have long hair. Jesus would not have had long hair, yet the image on the shroud is of a man with long hair. Yes, well, uh, that is, uh, uh, well uh, uh, long hair was probably uh, quite typical for Jews. As, uh, he was writing uh, that uh, the people at Corinth at that time were, were influenced by, by, uh, by Greek and Roman uh, uh, culture. And, uh, you know, so that the, uh, you know, the Greeks and Romans, uh, they, they had short hair. And uh, so there, uh, that was dealing with a particular cultural conflict, and not that, uh, you know, the, the Jews didn't wear long hair. And uh, actually, that is that the... Uh, of course, uh, many many Jews would take a, a Nazarite vow, uh, which they they would not uh, you know, uh, cut their hair or shave their beard, and uh, so that uh, you know this is a uh, uh, no the man of the shroud does have long hair. That's that uh, what Paul was uh, referring to is this a particular situation in Corinth, uh, rather than uh, than Jewish practice in general. All right. Let's go to the phones and uh, welcome Tony in Brampton, Ontario. Welcome to the Conspiracy Show AM740 Toronto, Tony. Hi, Richard. Hello. Uh, yes, I have a question. According to a book that I read back in the early 80s, uh, the image on the Shroud of Turin was 185 centimeters high. That would have made him uh, six foot one. Now, if Jesus was six foot one, wouldn't that have made him stand out like a sore thumb? And wouldn't have that have been noted in the Gospels? Interesting. Was Jesus six foot one? Uh, uh, well, he was pr probably between the five eleven and six feet. Uh, that is, that the uh, of course the, the image on the shroud does that the, the body is in the same position it was on the cross, so he's he's bent forward. And so that, uh, you know, you have to kind of average out the, the front and the back measurements. But, uh, you know, he was between uh, 5'11 and 6 feet uh, uh, tall, uh, which, uh, you know, uh, um, the, the average Roman citizen, uh, or a male, 
back at back at the time, she was uh, was just five five. So that the, yeah, the people they, were generally they, smaller, but uh, they they found a number of uh, skeletons uh, in in Israel from that time, uh, which are over six feet, and so that their number of Jews who were uh, you know were uh, quite tall, uh, Jesus uh, was was tall as he would probably be uh, head and shoulders above the average person, but he didn't look like one of our basketball players, <laughs> you know, So I mean, well, he wouldn't well, look uh, grotesque. According according to uh, Isaiah 53, uh, the the suffering servant, he would not have any appearance that would be stately. Now, if he were that high, uh, he would be stately, and and he would be more recognizable, i.e., that that of a, a, a king. Well, well, right. Well, that's, he would uh, say he would he would be a uh, you know head head above uh, you know mo- most uh, people, but but uh, by by no means unique, because uh, there were many tall Jews back at the time. All right, uh, Tony and Brampton, thank you for that. I mentioned Nelson Thal a, a, a moment ago, and we had a most interesting uh, discussion about the shroud. And Nelson joins us. Uh, Nelson, welcome. Yeah, welcome. Um... I'll tell you why I don't believe it's uh, the image of Christ, and that is as you were saying. In First Corinthians 11, not talking just to the Corinthians, but to all men, he made it. He pointed out. He says, "Does not even nature itself teach you?" So he's using nature as an example. So nature is worldwide. It's not just the Corinthians. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, is it, it is a dishonor to him? So for the for, for that reason alone, this is not Christ. The second reason is. If you know anything as we do about the Knights Templar, they're the most anti-Christian group. They were part of the uh, of the the gang that took over and pushed the fall, the true church out, brought in the false church, and the, the the fact that it's in the hands of the Knights Templar. I mean, that's like putting it in the hands of George Soros or or uh, or uh, <laughs> you know any any crook of the day. I mean. Uh, so uh, that's how I read. I think that the, these are cleverly devised fables, as we're told in Peter. But I think it makes for great radio, and it makes for a very good uh, thing for people who aren't up on and uh, haven't blown the dust off their Bible. All right. Uh, well, uh, well, number one is, is that they, uh, uh, Paul uh, undertook a, a Nazarite view uh, or um, you know vow uh, at some time, so he he would let his hair grow. That's the, you know, that's the, all, all the Nazarites and the Jews may well have been one. No, but Jesus Christ didn't have long hair, and most of the disciples didn't have long hair, as they said, uh, at all. And not only that, the well, picture of the man I, I that I've seen isn't, doesn't look Jewish at all. Far, I mean, Christ was a Jew. This isn't the face of a Jew. It's more a Norseman or a Northman. Well, that's that's an interesting uh, point. Uh, he doesn't even look like a Jew. Well, once we... Christ was Jewish. Uh, well, yeah, he looked they, like ordinary the, Jewish the, the people. This guy doesn't look Jewish at all. Middle Eastern Semitic male. Uh, so that, uh, you know, the, the and basic this, And lastly, it's an image same. of God, and Christ wouldn't allow for an image of God to get out. I mean, he could control that. Well, uh, that is that. Uh, well, you're you're making an assumption. Uh, you know, that's that I, I think that's there's no, that's there's not no an way. Assumption. But uh, this could, could uh, this is a, a miraculous event. Uh, no, no, uh, miraculous uh, only the, happens the, if the, Christ the, the, or God is involved. The, and he, if he's involved, he, he wouldn't give a commandment saying, you're not to worship an image of me, and then allow an image to get out, especially when he controlled the fact that he made sure the Word of God got down for thousands of years. 
Well, that is that they, uh, of course, uh, that is that they, uh, the the image was used for a very, very particular purpose. Uh, that is that uh, this was the means by which the gospel spread into the the, the far east in the first century. No, so, he didn't. So need this, this, was a, the gospel. this was left to, to spread. No, he spread, spread the, the gospel, gospel by getting the lost ten tribes scattered. I mean, he didn't need, and he sent the. He's only Paul was sent to the Gentiles. All the other disciples weren't sent to the Gentiles, but sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Nelson, how would you explain the image? Uh, uh, anything that comes out of 14th century or the Knights of Knights of uh, Templar, or that's the Popish persons that the Bible talks about. This is a traduction by uh, Popish you know, in, in persons, that's century. how I would describe it. And the Templars probably did it. They would have had the advanced technology. They got it from the prince of the power of the air, the doom god of this world. So you're saying it's a Luciferian deception? Absolutely. Interesting. A cleverly devised fable. Okay. All right. Well, there's Nelson's... And uh, it wasn't uh, even good enough. If I had been Satan, I would have said, you've got to get a guy who looks Jewish and cut his hair. <laughs> they'll, they'll know the difference. <laughs> All right. Well, well uh, thanks, uh, Rod uh, Richard. Uh, you're doing a great job. Okay. And thanks for your book on the Shroud. It's just great. Okay, thank you. Well, uh, that's an interesting take, um, uh, Dr. Oh, okay. Wanger. Okay, well, well, fine. That's a, well, he's got, trying to say that that's not the image of Jesus. I think that there's very good evidence it's the image of Jesus. Uh, that's a, the number one. Uh, that's a, the, well, the, the, what we see on the shroud, uh, you know, the, all the scourging, the, the beating, the, uh, the nails, uh, the crowns of thorns, and so forth, follows exactly the scriptural account of what happened to Jesus. Yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, we'll, we'll take a time out. When we come back, let's talk about the, uh, this is almost a, a CSI-type uh, examination now of the shroud. When we match the wounds uh, that are visible on the shroud to the... Uh, I guess the passion described in the Gospels, in the Bible, and uh, this is quite intriguing. So you'll want to stay tuned for this as we examine the Shroud of Turin with Dr. Alan Wanger. Clever medieval forgery or the actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ? Only you can decide. Back with more. Stay with us. We deal in illusions, man. None of it is true. But you people sit there day after day, night after night, all ages, colors, creeds. We're all you know. You're beginning to believe the illusions we're spinning here. You're beginning to think that the tube is reality and that your own lives are unreal. You do whatever the tube tells you. You dress like the tube. You ate like the tube. You raise your children like the tube. You even think like the tube. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. So turn off your television sets. Turn them off now. Turn them off right now. Turn them off and leave them off. Turn them off right in the middle of the sentence I'm speaking to you now. Turn them off. Brainwashed in our childhood. Brainwashed by the school. Brainwashed by our teachers. And brainwashed by all the rules. Brainwashed by our leaders. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. The website is richardserrett.com, S-Y-R-E-T-T, Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T, dot com, your portal to The Conspiracy Show. All the information you need on upcoming shows. There's a past show audio archive. You just have to pay $1.50 through PayPal. And you can download the full two hours of each and every show. And uh, you can also follow me on Twitter, 
Richard Serrett, all one word. All right, um, Dr. Alan Wanger is with us as we discuss the Shroud of Turin. And uh, let's uh, talk about the, uh, the, uh, the, the wounds that are visible on the Shroud. Now, before Christ was uh, sent to be crucified, he was um, uh, tortured, essentially, by uh, Roman soldiers using a sort of a scourging a whip or a flagrum. And uh, are those wounds uh, visible uh, on his back on the shroud? Uh, actually, the scourge wounds are visible all over most of the body. That is that uh, he was hit uh, with the, a, a very particular Roman uh, uh, whip or flagrum. Uh, that is that the uh, the detail in the shroud is so clear we can actually tell the type of flagrum was used. It's called a flagrum taxolotum or the terrible scourge. Uh, this uh, particular type of scourge, which was used, you know, sort of uh, on on the worst of, <laughs> of offenders, uh, uh, had uh, metal dumbbells on the end of the leather straps that had little barbs on them. So every time the individual was hit by these, it drive the barbs, and when they pull it back, it tear out little bits of the flesh. And uh, we can tell he was hit at least 125 times uh, with the these Roman scourges, literally from head to foot, uh, top, uh, front and back. There's always uh, been a great debate uh, in terms of the stigmata wounds. Uh, of course, we have uh, typically, uh, in Jesus is depicted having been nailed through the, uh, the feet and also through the palms of his hands. Yet, my understanding uh, is that there were studies uh, done and that a, a, a body could not be uh, held up if it was because the flesh in the palm is so uh, soft, the tissue there is so soft that the the, the weight of the human body would basically uh, cause the nails to to, uh, to to tear right through the palm. Uh, yet, it, it, it's quite apparent for reasons I know that you can get into here that the the the, the image on the shroud, Jesus must have been nailed through the hands. Can you explain the the seeming contradiction? Well, uh, that's the, the the problem is that the the Jewish word uh, you know uh, in the scripture is called yad, which refers not only to the hands but uh, for everything from the elbow down, and so it, it indicates uh, that he was nailed uh, in in the yad. Uh, but uh, many interpret this as being the hands, and that would that seemed to be sort of the more logical, uh, easy place. But, of course, the Romans, uh, who did thousands of crucifixions, they knew that, that that wouldn't hold the person up. And so they, they'd either put the nail through the wrist or through the forearm. And uh, as, uh, we, we can tell quite, uh, quite plainly that the, uh, he was nailed through the wrist. We can see the skeletal system <laughs> on the shroud, but you can actually see the, the gap in the wrist bones where the nail went through. So there's a, there's absolutely no doubt it's nailed through the wrist and not through the palm of the hand, as most artistic depictions show. And also, it's interesting that the uh, when you look at the image, the thumb is not visible. It's it's apparently it's curled under the rest of the hand, which which actually corroborates uh, what you just said that he was nailed through the wrist. And why is that? Uh, well, that is uh, when uh, there's, a, there's a, a space on, on the inner side of the wrist called the, the space of toe. It's a little depression. It's quite e- you can uh, If you know where it is, you can easily uh, f- uh, feel it, uh, in which uh, you can put, uh, you know, if you have a sharp nail and a, you know, a strong uh, man holding a heavy hammer, you can drive the nail through this place, this place with one stroke without, without breaking any bones. 
it goes between the bones, but it irritates uh, the median nerve that runs into the hand, and it cause, that would cause the thumb to sort of contract, not all the way into the thumb, but it would sort of straighten out with the, with the index finger. So that uh, it would become, you know, when you look from the back, uh, you, you wouldn't exactly, you know, you wouldn't see the thumb. So, uh, so th- th- this this would indicate that uh, indeed, uh, you know, it was he was nailed through the wrists and, and not uh, through the palms of the hand. So again, if this was a hoax, the the uh, the hoaxer would have to have had an incredibly advanced knowledge of not only physiology and anatomy but also pathology. Well, well certainly. You know, I, I mean, this is uh, you know the, the this is a highly complicated, sophisticated image, and to to uh, assume that you know uh, somebody, even Da Vinci back in the Middle Ages, could do this is, is nonsensical. Uh, talk to me about the, the presence of, of of coins on the eyes. There are actual, there is an actual image uh, on the shroud of of coins, and this was this was discovered fairly recently, was it not? Uh, well, uh, actually, this, uh, this was uh, we uh, we corroborated uh, this uh, finding back in 1981. It was uh, first noticed by uh, Father Frank Filas, who was one of the early shroud researchers, um, who uh, happened to have uh, copies of the 1931 photographs, which were made of the shroud, which are you know very high grade and detailed images. And uh, uh, several people had noticed uh, back in the mid '70s when uh, they they first uh, you know some of the researchers had put uh, the shroud face in their computer imaging device and got this three dimensional image which they knew was totally unique uh, that they noticed these button like things over the eyes and so some speculated those might be coins and so there's several investigators who are looking uh, into this and uh, Dr. Phyllis uh, you know was also a photographer. Uh, enlarged his photographs and then noted the pattern of uh, little letters uh, over the right eye. And uh, so that, uh, you know, he got kind of excited about that. And there's also a pattern that looks sort of like a shepherd's crook. Well, uh, the the coin experts working with, with this small group uh, said, well, there's only one coin in all history that had this thing like a shepherd's crook as the major pattern on it. And uh, that happened to be the lepton or the pruta or the widow's mite struck by Pontius Pilate. So, uh, so he, he gave, you know, he had a few of these, uh, you know, and just gave uh, one to the investigators as sort of a souvenir. But uh, of all things, he, he gave of, uh, of Father Phyllis a, a coin which happened to be a dimate of the one that formed the image. And uh, so that, uh, you know, this, this, is, uh, you know, this was extremely, <laughs> well, we call it fortuitous. I don't think it's fortuitous at all. I think this is, uh, you know, uh, you know, a uh, divine intervention uh, to uh, to do this. Uh, actually, uh, this this can be seen uh, on our our website. As we have a website, and you can do some of our research technique on on our website, which uh, you can can see uh, the in- incredible accuracy with uh, which this coin is depicted uh, over the right eye. And of course, and, the, the coins uh, would have been placed on the eyes in order to keep the eyelids closed. This was a fairly common practice. Uh, well into the uh, well, the nineteenth century, you place pennies or coins on the uh, on the eyes. Oh yes, right. But that, that that's been been done throughout the ages, you know, to keep the the, the uh, eyes of the dead shut. Um, and uh, that's that the the Jews didn't ordinarily use coins uh, with in burials as uh, such as the the Greeks and uh, the, some of the Romans did. But uh, that's that the Jews did two things, uh, always did two things at the time of death. They would close the eyes and they'd tie the chin shut. 
And uh, so that, but if a person dies with eyes open, uh, they, if you shut them, they may well open up again. So uh, they can be kept closed with a small coin. And, you know, we think that, uh, you know, so somebody just pulled a, a couple of the, the widow's mites out of their, their pocket, uh, you know, their purse, and put them on his eyes simply to keep the, the eyelids shut. But, uh, you know, since uh, the, you know, uh, the, the resurrection uh, was a radiation event and uh, we got radiation off, off the coins, so we can actually tell the, the patterning of, of the coins. And uh, this is important because, um, you know, there's a, the, these were just a penny of the time and they would never circulate outside of Israel. Well, what's interesting to note uh, is um, that uh, up until there were actual archaeological discoveries confirming the existence of Pontius Pilate, it was assumed by many that, that uh, there was no Pontius Pilate, that that was just a name that was made up. Of course, they, those who uh, believed that didn't believe in the Bible, of course. And then they found actual archaeological evidence that there was a Pontius Pilate. So to have these coins um, that were minted during the reign of Pontius Pilate uh, visible on the shroud. I mean, how can you argue uh, against that? Uh, to, to, to me, that's just uh, uh, pretty remarkable uh, evidence. Well, uh, we think it is too. Of course, yes. You know that uh, uh, the, the, the the in a sense, the problem of the coins with the number of people is that the, the number one of this uh, localizes it to Israel. It dates it because uh, you know the both the coins are the there's a, a less clear image over the left eye, but still it uh, it uh, well matches another Pontius Pilate uh, uh, Plutarch coin, and the both these coins were struck in 29 A.D. So that uh, we we feel that uh, this uh, definitely locates and dates the uh, the, the shroud, but uh, also and this is very important. And if you if you look at uh, and do the uh, the comparison on our website. You, you can see that the, the pattern of the, uh, the image over the right eye is off the, the high points and the irregular surfaces of the coin. Well, this is characteristic of electrostatic or coronal discharge. And so th- this is, uh, was, again, some, uh, you know, some very strong evidence which uh, uh, confirmed the speculation of the investigating scientists in 1978 that this is a radiation image. All right, when we come back, we have to talk about the radiocarbon dating uh, test that was performed on the shroud in the, uh, the late 80s, which seemed uh, to confirm that the shroud was, in fact, a medieval forgery. However, that car- radiocarbon test has now been called into serious question. We'll discuss that. And also, the, uh, the existence of pollen samples on the shroud, which gives further credence uh, to the... Uh, supposition that this is the actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Next week on the show... Film producer Kevin Booth will be here to talk about American drug war, his film, and also how weed won the West. And uh, two weeks from now on the program, we'll uh, talk about uh, a conspiracy revolving around professional sports and sports betting. You'll want to stay tuned for that one. All right, Dr. Alan Wanger is uh, with us here on The Conspiracy Show, AM 740 here in Toronto, 
And on this Easter Sunday, of course, we are talking about the Shroud of Turin, and whether it's a medieval forgery or the actual burial cloth of Christ. All right, the uh, the late 80s. Again, we mentioned that this is uh, the the most studied, uh, single most studied artifact in human history. Uh, and there were uh, radiocarbon uh, testing. There was radiocarbon testing performed on the Shroud in about 1988, I believe. And at that time, it was proclaimed that the Shroud was uh, dated uh, somewhere in the th- 13 or 1400s. Uh, uh, 1260 or 1390. Okay. So, but that's now been called into the serious question, Dr. Wanger. Explain. All right. Well, fine. Uh, those that they, uh, well, if I can kind of go back to just a, a little bit, uh, there was uh, extensive scientific studies uh, done during the, uh, just after the public viewing in 1978. That's when we heard of the shroud. Uh, um, those that they talked about doing carbon dating at that time, but it would have taken a hexer-sized piece of uh, fabric to do the carbon dating then. They weren't about to you know, chop a big hole in the shroud for that. The uh, techniques improved so they could use much smaller specimens. So in 1986, a group of 24 carbon dating experts met in turn to set up the protocol or procedure for doing a carbon dating test. And uh, they had, uh, you know, they had been been warned this that uh, and, and knew that the, this was going to be the most controversial and difficult carbon dating ever done. So they said, "Look, uh, we'll we'll take seven specimens from seven places, use seven labs, two techniques, and study the sampling." the samples very carefully before we do the testing, I mean, which was a perfectly good uh, protocol. For reasons which are still very un- unclear, uh, you know, shortly before the, the specimen was taken in 1988, the uh, scientific advisor for the then Cardinal of Turin was a custodian of the shroud, said we're going to throw out the entire protocol. Uh, so uh, we, we throw out four of the labs, one of the techniques. Uh, we'll take one specimen, and I'll tell you where we're going to take specimen from. Well, well this, this appalled... <laughs> most of the investigators, including us, because you, you you don't do scientific tests that, that way. But uh, anyway, that's uh, that's what they did. So the, they took a, a, a single specimen uh, from a place they were told to stay away from because it was abnormal. And so they took this one specimen and uh, cut the you know pieces off for three labs. So the three labs did the same test on the same specimen which, again, is no way that you, you do a carbon dating uh, test uh, you know, for you know, any credibility. And uh, so that, uh, you know, they've, uh, when we heard where they took the specimen from, we, we just knew we were going to get the wrong date because, you know, that, 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 that's, that's the dirtiest corner. You know, it's a, down by a repair uh, 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 on the shroud and uh, next to the burn mark and the water stain. And uh, but uh, anyway, that's uh, when they came out the result. But uh, we didn't believe it for a moment, as well as a number of the other other investigators that didn't, uh, because uh, say we'd already been able to date the shroud, the shroud to the spring of 30 A.D. in the vicinity of Jerusalem, and so that the carbon dating had to be wrong. We were wondering why in the world you know they had ever got such a wrong date as that. Uh, we, we we got copies of the video of them taking the the sample. There's a close up of the sample taking, and uh, there's a seam that runs the full length of the the shroud down one one side. And uh, there's that they uh, they they took part of this seam, which uh, you know was uh, we think put in in 16th century, uh, runs up the sample, 
Well, I mean, this is so gross they cut that off. But uh, when we examined the uh, the video of them taking the sample, uh, we saw that there were uh, thick, abnormal threads running out from the seam into the piece of uh, material that they used for the carbon dating. So this gets us back to the fire that happened uh, when the shroud was in the, 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 the stored in the silver box and was singed during the fire, uh, and it and then this is in the outer edges of the shroud. It there was repair. Repairs done to the shroud using a a, uh, a repair fabric or a repair yeah. linen. That's uh, yes, what they right. tested uh, for the radiocarbon. Yeah, they did extensive re- repairs on it. And they they put a backing cloth on it and uh, put this seam in it, and uh, they obviously uh, did uh, some some very uh, you know incredible reweaving in the damaged corner, and uh, so that uh, you know uh, we 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 saw this back in in uh, nineteen. 19- Eighty nine, when we got the videos that uh, you know this was from a rewoven corner. Of course, a lot of people didn't believe us, including most of the media, which was <laughs> uh, it was, a, it was a, we've from long experience uh, working with them uh, are generally very hostile to the shroud, and uh, so that the um, you know uh, well, I'll just toss this in for a little bit of our own history. That's, uh, we we put our first press release on our findings in uh, nineteen eighty. And um, you know that's that the uh, we got uh, you know uh, mentioned New York Times we got three three sentences in section M on the shroud and then, uh, as far as we know they didn't publish anything else about the shroud to, to the carbon dating which which uh, that time uh, one third of the front page and two thirds of page two of the New York Times was taken up with the the, the carbon dating proving the shroud to be a fake and you know which is uh, kind of a indicative you know of uh, the the media been trying to get rid of it, and uh, you know many of them were were delighted that they they could finally uh, use this carbon dating to prove that the thing was a fake, and uh, this this uh, this was, was on the front page of virtually every newspaper around the world that the shroud was a fake, and uh, then uh, it was uh, very difficult to get any uh, any response or any investigation or you know uh, to results uh, after that because you know everybody knew the thing was a fake. Well, Mark Twain uh, said it best: "The truth is easily killed, but a lie told well is immortal." <laughs> right. So, well, that that that's uh, that's quite true in, in this case. Um, but uh, that is that they uh, subsequently um, uh, a fellow by the name of Ray Rogers, who was one of the 1978 investigators and a, a microscopic chemist, uh, got some of the material uh, that was uh, left over from the carbon dating. And examine this, and um, you know he was very skeptical about this. He, you know, he kind of wrote the shroud off when they did the carbon dating, but uh, when he looked at it, they, they found that there were, um, you know, there are many dyed cotton fibers uh, interwoven with the linen fibers, and uh, you know, there's there's no dyed cotton in the rest of the shroud. You know, it's uh, quite obvious that they had they'd gotten a, a repaired part of the shroud, and so that uh, we, we think probably up to sixty percent of the material they used for the carbon dating was actually uh, dyed cotton from the 16th century. All right, let's go to the phones and uh, welcome Visland to uh, the Conspiracy Show on AM 740. Good morning, Visland. Hi. Hi there. Uh, this is not on the topic, but this regard to one of the lady callers a while back when she says, what proof is there that Christ will return? Well, all she has to do is read John 14 and John 17 earlier in the, in the chapter. I'm not sure of the verse where he says... I am no longer in the world. The world will see me no more. So it's a, not a literal physical presence, but a, an invisible presence that will be over the earth. 
All right, uh, Vislin, thank you for that uh, quote from Scripture. I, I think the question actually had to do with whether or not there was any evidence in the sh- contained in the shroud uh, as to uh, his return. Uh, uh, now, well, right. Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, uh, uh, what, what we feel that the shroud shows is, is evidence for a physical resurrection. And, uh, you know, so that Jesus said, uh, you know, if, if he went, he would come back. So I, I think that uh, this is uh, you know is, uh, is evidence uh, you know to indicate that he's quite capable of uh, of, of, of resurrecting and uh, so he's quite capable of coming back um, and so we feel that this is a uh, to to inform and uh, reassure uh, uh, you know the people who are seeking or believers in, in the interval. Uh, before we talk about the radiation associated with the the shroud. Let me ask you about the pollen samples, uh, because uh, this is an area of particular interest for you as someone who is, uh, has a very keen interest in photography, uh, and you've studied the photographs of the shroud and were able to identify the uh, images of actual plants that were, uh, that were placed on the shroud when Jesus was uh, placed in the tomb. Talk about the plants that you've identified. All right, well, fine. Well, this is the, uh, is a, a, just a way of a background. Uh, we have about 35 extremely high-grade photographs of the shroud that we use as a basic for, uh, basis for a lot of our research. As I never saw the shroud until it was out in, uh, for public in 1998, but uh, we've been working on it seriously since 1979. But we, we ha- had these extremely high-grade photographs. And I, I noticed uh, on the, the photograph, I was uh, actually examining up close, and I noticed this peculiar pattern out of on my uh, corner of my eye. I thought there were little faces there, but I backed off and saw it was, a, it was the, the 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 petals of a flower. And uh, so that uh, you know, I'm trained in a number of fields, but not botany. So that uh, when I when I backed off and began looking around, I saw what these images looked like. Well, there are images all over the shroud. So I, uh, I got the, the eight-volume set of the uh, what's called the Flora Palestina. These are the definitive botany books of Israel. So I, I spent um, you know much of my spare time, which you know uh, was usually in the middle of the night, uh, going over our photographs, uh, to, uh, trying to, to match up the images we see on the shroud with the the, uh, the images of flowers in the botany books. And so that uh, it took me four years to you know to, to check out the the ones I thought I could identify. Uh, and uh, this, this uh, say was uh, as you mentioned earlier, was extremely important because uh, these these all all grow in Israel, and uh, they uh, you know they, uh, they they bloom in March and April, and uh, so that they. Uh, but uh, we tried to get this out in the media, but uh, we finished that work in 1989, and because the shroud had uh, supposedly been proven to be a fake in 1988, uh, we we couldn't get anybody to look at this even. Much less publish it. So you found images of of plants uh, on the shroud that you were able to cross reference and and identify as flowering plants that only grow in the proximity of Jerusalem at uh, a particular time of year, being March and April. Uh, but what about a follow up by actual botanists and and to determine whether there were pollen samples on the shroud? Uh, okay, well, fine. Well, that is that a, a, a Swiss uh, uh, what we call a criminalist. That's that, uh, uh, and uh, this is a person who gathers information uh, for uh, forensic examination. Uh, Max Fry. Um, it was also a botanist uh, that took sticky tapes off the shroud in 1973 and 1978. Uh, he uh, he uh, examined the shroud in 73 and uh, noticed there are pollens on it, so he, he took a number of these sticky tapes 
to uh, take back to the lab to to look at the you know to, to examine the the pollen. Well, he found lots of pollen grains, but he couldn't identify most of them. Uh, as he had been examining uh, European pollens for 25 years, so he knew these were not European pollens. And so he uh, uh, took seven trips to the Middle East gathering botanical specimens to try to match up with what he was finding on the, um, uh, on the, uh, from the shroud. And uh, so that uh, he had identified uh, 58 po- different pollens. Well, there's a high correlation. You mentioned uh, you know, of the 28 flowers we had initially identified, he had identified the pollens of 25 of these or of a, you know, a very closely related species. So we knew there's a high correlation. Um, now that is that they, um, uh, uh, in the 1995, uh, we went to, uh, to Israel, and uh, I'd, uh, before we went out there, I'd heard of Professor Avi Noam Danin. He's, a, he's the professor of botany at Hebrew University in Jerusalem and is the world's authority on the flowers of the Middle East as he writes textbooks and all this sort of thing. So I just I called him up and told him I worked on the shroud and uh, found some images on there I'd like for him to take a look at. Well, you know, he had no, no stock in the shroud, but he's a good researcher. He looked at anything once. So we, we took uh, some of our photographs out there, and uh, I never will forget it uh, after getting acquainted with him. I just handed him one of our photographs, and he looked at it for about 10 seconds and said, those are the flowers of Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, it's what I thought, uh, but it, uh, yeah, it's nice having the world's authority agree with us. Now, the, uh, of course, uh, during uh, the, uh, the period before the crucifixion, uh, Roman soldiers placed mockingly a, a crown of thorns on, on Jesus' head, that according to the Gospel account. Uh, is there any evidence on the shroud? For example, is, was, the sh- was the crown of thorns uh, uh, placed in the tomb with Jesus, is there any evidence of the crown of thorns on the shroud? Uh, well, as a matter of fact, uh, there is. Uh, that is that, uh, we had, uh, there's a, a, a very prominent uh, you know, th- uh, thorn, what's well, actually a thistle, but it looks, it looks like a thorn. I mean, it's a great big spiky thing uh, on that. And uh, in investigating that, uh, we found that actually there's an image of a crown of thorns uh, on the shroud, it's on the, it's on the right shoulder. Uh, you know, it, uh, it was taken off the head and put on the right shoulder, and so we, we can see a good part of the uh, image of a crown of thorns. Um, you know, which is uh, you know is, is a pretty remarkable in itself. Uh, sometime later, there's that uh, you know this is a big bonnet-like uh, a crown. Uh, you know, there's that uh, in the year 2000 uh, we. The shroud was out, and we we led a group over to see the the shroud again. And but then we went up to Paris and had an opportunity to see the traditional crown of thorns in the Cathedral Notre Dame in Paris, and which is just a band of woven straw, and uh, no thorns on it or anything, and uh, you know didn't remotely resemble the one we had seen on the shroud. So I, I thought that that was what I call a pious object. There are many pious objects in cathedrals around Europe and so Certainly. forth. Certainly. Well, there was a whole industry on, uh, on uh, yes, uh, right, reproductions. Right. But, but what about pollen samples around the head? Do they corroborate the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the thorns? Uh, well, well, yes, right. That the, uh, the, the pollens of several thorns were on there, and, uh, and Professor Danine, who uh, you know, confirmed most of our identifications and found some others, uh, there, there are images of, of five different uh, thorns and thistles visible on the shroud. But uh, what, what I noticed, um, you know, uh, after I'd seen the crown in, uh, in Notre Dame, and uh, Professor Danine had also identified some pieces of thorns still embedded in the back of the head, you know, visible on the shroud. 
Remarkable. And it didn't match up with the other, other crown. Listen, when we come back, let's talk about what NASA scientists found out when they examined this remarkable piece of linen. The Shroud of Turin on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To get to the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Dr. Alan Wanger stays with us. We continue to discuss the Shroud of Turin. Our um, online poll at richardserrett.com, we call it Your Call. The question, is the Shroud of Turin the actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ? 69.6% of you say no, it's a clever medieval forgery. 30.4% say yes, and it contains evidence of his resurrection. So uh, since this program has been on and uh, you've had a chance to listen to the evidence and Dr. Alan Wanger, the, uh, the yes side is creeping up ever so slightly. All right. Now, NASA scientists uh, also uh, examined the Shroud of Turin. And uh, first of all, what what sort of tests were they conducting and what sort of equipment were they using? Okay, well, fine. Uh, Let's see, uh, I'd like to to, to boost uh, those uh, figures up a little bit. Uh, Just to kind of finish up, if you don't mind, about the crowns of thorns, because this is extremely important. Okay. Uh, That is that they, uh, on examining the Shroud, we found the image of a second crown. Uh, on there, which uh, which matches the one in Notre Dame, and is uh, you know just a band of straw. We think that this is the one in Scripture where the soldiers you know just uh, wove a band of straw and stuck thorns and thistles in it. So of all things, there are two crowns of thorns visible on the shroud. Hmm. Uh, this is this would uh, help uh, you know to identify who this is because uh, prior to Jesus, there was no mention of crowns of thorns ever on anybody else in history. No, I mean, there were thousands of people crucified. Yeah, uh, but, and, the, the, but not, not with crowns of thorns. No, because, uh, you know, there, he was, of course, being mocked because he was being referred to as the king of the Jews. So they decided, well, if, he, if he's a king, he needs a crown. Uh, right. And uh, that's that the, the botany is also important because the, uh, uh, you know, that's that the Professor Donin, you know, uh, indicated that only place in the world that, uh, you know, you'd find all of these flowers in a fre- in fresh state is in the vicinity of Jerusalem, nowhere else in the world. So that, uh, you know, the, the botany locates it there. Uh, also, we can tell from the uh, condition of the flowers that the image was formed between 30 and 36 hours after the flowers were picked. And uh, on one of the flowers, uh, Professor Donin, uh, you know, can, can tell by the degree of opening of this flower that the, that flower is picked between 3 and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. My word, that's precise, isn't it? Yes, right. And so that, uh, you know, even the, the botany localizes it, you know, to, to the right time of the year uh, and the, the right timing uh, to fit the crucifixion and the resurrection. Wow. And the, the images of all the flowers are characteristic of electrostatic or coronal discharge. Now, what does that mean? They're indicating uh, uh, um, coronic discharge. What does that mean? Uh, well, uh, this, this means that this is a type of radiation image. It's called electrostatic Im- imaging, or you know, it's a, or coronal discharge. Uh, this is uh, one of the uh, scientific uh, you know findings here, and is uh, you know is totally unique to the shroud. There's, there's nothing remotely resembling the shroud anyway. 
But uh, you know, on examining them more, more closely, we, we find that this uh, you know, strong evidence of radiation coming from within and from the surface of the body. Radiation coming from within the body, which yeah. which because you know we we can uh, we can identify the the skeletal the the, the bones in in the back and the in the feet in in the hands uh, in the skull in the teeth, and uh, the only way you could get this is if you're getting some type of uh, radiation like X radiation coming from within the body, which presumably would have happened during the resurrection. Uh, exactly. So and, uh, Jesus' not body, just, uh, not just radiation. Uh, all, this radiation is all vertically directed. This uh, the radiation went in all in only one direction, as up and down, uh, which is, defies uh, you know physics, uh, and uh, that's the reason we get such a sharp imaging on the shroud. And this is uh, totally impossible to to replicate. Uh, w- meaning that the 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 body passed physically through the shroud. Well, uh, I'm not the the body dematerialized. Okay. That uh, we we feel, and a number of the physicists have looked looked at, at this. Uh, call this a uh, a controlled nuclear event. I mean, uh, there's nothing like it, so you know, you can't describe exactly what it is. A controlled this, nuclear this controlled event. Nuclear event occurred between 30 and 36 hours after the death of the individual, with the body disappearing from within the folded shroud without the shroud being unfolded. Hmm. And so you know, it's uh, it's kind of hard to come up with any explanation other than the uh, scriptural one, which says uh, uh, he resurrected. So, can you measure this this radiation? Uh, well, uh, it, well, it's it's complex, as that uh, you know, it's uh, it's, uh, it's 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 hard to replicate. So it's hard to measure. Although uh, one of the investigators uh, that worked with us was a specialist in uh, high voltage phenomena. And, uh, you know, just uh, assuming, and this is before we knew about the X-radiation, that uh, if this is just a chrome discharge, he said that it would take, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, to produce the, the images that we were seeing there by chrome discharge, it would take between a, a, a 15,000 horsepower of energy at 1 to 200 million volts uh, to, to produce this uh, in a tenth of a second or less. You know, which is the uh, characteristic of the, the uh, lightning bolts. Mm. So, so this is this is no no ordinary uh, you know production. This, this is a totally unique event, uh, which uh, we feel uh, you know occurred at the moment of resurrection when the the body was dematerializing and uh, basically uh, converting from matter to some type of energy. All right, back to uh, NASA. Uh, what did they uh, find? Uh, well, uh, that is that they uh, uh, NASA itself. That didn't do the investigating. There's several investigators that work for NASA, uh, you know, and um, you know, of course, says that they they were applying a a, a variety of uh, of a test uh, to, to this. Um, that is that uh, which um, you know uh, uh, correlated that this this was a uh, this was a ra- radiation image, although again they can't uh, describe it uh, exactly. Did they uh, also not discover that? Uh, uh, in addition to the image on the shroud being a negative image, it also contains some 3D information? Uh, yes, right. The, the, this, this is uh, one of the, the more recent uh, things that uh, was, was found, is that there, there's, there's 3D data encoded in the 2D image. And so a holograms have been made of the shroud. They were made a little over three years ago, uh, which are absolutely stunning. 
uh, the, that is that they the um, you know this uh, this uh, um, you know but the distance data is encoded in in the in the image so it's totally unique I mean no ordinary photographer painting uh, has uh, this characteristic that the, the, the shroud does and uh, so that th- this helps uh, you know point it out point it out as you unique and uh, the uh, these 3D images uh, sh- uh, show the body in the same position it was on the cross. And uh, uh, on the holograms, as though the body is lifted about a foot off the shroud. Uh, you know, it really is stunning to, to to see these. In in other words, at the moment of resurrection, the uh, the body and the shroud that was wrapped on it were levitating inside the tomb. Uh, well, uh, we can't uh, we can't say exactly. That is, it, it's uh, the 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 body is is not not flattened out as though you know we're just kind of a you know been. Uh, Laying flat on on a on a stone for for a couple of days. Because then there would be some distortion. Yes, right. There's uh, there's no distortion of the fact that the body is in a you know in a kind of a, uh, a slump position, was the uh, same position on the cross. So you right. get slight distortion from that. But uh, physiologically, uh, the uh, what we see on the shroud is uh, you know is exactly what we would anticipate. So again, uh, in order for that image to uh, to appear that way, that would tend to suggest to me, anyway, that uh, at the again at the moment of resurrection, the body was uh, upright and uh, in the position that it was on the cross. So therefore, lev- essentially levitating. Uh, well, uh, we, we don't think it's necessarily uh, upright. There's a, you know uh, the uh, some have speculated, some of the physicists uh, you know have speculated that it may have. Uh, uh, you know, levitating or something sort of at the moment of, uh, of the resurrection. But um, you know, again, this is this is a speculation. But uh, it's something uh, highly unusual uh, went on. As far as to, to help identify this further, those who still think it's not Jesus, uh, that is, uh, not only uh, do we see you know the uh, the information on the shroud of all the, the beating, the scourging, the nailing, the crown of thorns, and so forth. Uh, that is characteristic of that. The, the, the two crowns are, are, are unique, but uh, also the other objects were put in the shroud, including the title which was over his head. King of the Jews. And, and uh, so that uh, we, uh, the title was put inside the shroud as uh, well as uh, these other instruments, and so we can, we can see a few a part of the letters uh, that are on the title over his head. And so we we can see uh, parts of uh, Greek letters and uh, you know some of the uh, Latin letters for the word Nazareth on the shroud, and uh, so to to, <laughs> to to assume that that's anybody else but Jesus of Nazareth uh, is uh, you know is, uh, you know a little far fetched. All right, let's grab one more quick call while we have time. Greg is in uh, Burlington. Greg, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. You're on the line with Dr. Alan Wanger. Oh, thanks, Richard. Yeah, uh, Mr. Wanger, I was just wondering. It, I know it's hypothetical, but here's, here's an alien that comes down to Earth. He was captured by the people because, obviously, his beliefs aren't right. So they hang him on a cross. Well, after he gets put in a burial, of course, he goes back to his ship. So they beam him back up to his ship. That would leave a resin mark on the trout, right? Well, um, no. If I speculate on some alien demon or something of the sort, when we've we've got the Son of God coming down and uh, and then doing that, so uh, that uh, you know, I, I don't think. He, well, he's 
uh, in in the sense of God's alien uh, to the earth, but you know, he made it in the first place. I think he had just come into the earth he made. Yeah, Jesus as E.T., well, he was uh, an extraterrestrial, essentially. Um, uh, I, I see where you're going with that, uh, with that, Greg, sort of taking it one step further. Jesus was uh, yeah, an interplanetary was, astronaut, but... Uh, yeah, because they have cave drawing, drawings in Spain. I've been to Spain, and they, they have cave drawings of aliens that have landed on Earth. Well, I I wouldn't uh, you know I I think that that's uh, you know that's kind of the, the looting out the the gospel story which I I think the uh, the shroud is the illustration of the uh, core of the uh, you know of the gospel I, I think in the in the shroud image we see the suffering the passion the the death and the resurrection all in the single image and I and I don't think uh, you know that to try to drag that in the science fiction. That this space alien is, um, you know, kind of uh, losing the point. All right, uh, Greg in Burlington, uh, thank you nonetheless for the call and the comments. All right, a few moments remain. Back on the other side with Dr. Alan Wanger here on the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. So, Dr. Alan Wanger, when you look at the a positive image, a 3D positive image of the shroud, you're, you're uh, 100% confident you are actually looking at a, a photograph, a positive image, a 3D image of Jesus Christ. What, what, what goes through your, your, your mind as you're, you're looking into the image, or looking at the image of Jesus, a photograph, essentially, of Jesus? Uh, well, I've, I've been looking at this, uh, these uh, images for, uh, for 31 years now, and it still puts a hair up in the back of my head, you know, to kind of look at this and uh, realize, uh, you know, what this image is and what it shows, you know, showing the, the uh, you know, the, the suffering, the, the, the passion, uh, the, the death and the, and the resurrection uh, in, in this uh, unique and a powerful image is just, uh, you know, r- rather awesome. So you're looking very, into very the... F- interestingly, there's that the, the shroud will be out on public display in Turin starting uh, next Saturday. Uh, it'll be out on public display from April the 10th to May the 23rd in Turin. So uh, you know uh, you'll you'll uh, hear a lot more about it. Of course, says that uh, this this will get a lot of media attention, including a lot of people are still trying to make it out to be a medieval uh, fake of some sort. But uh, our our contention is that look at the evidence. Is there any recent miracles attributed to the shroud? Uh, it, the shroud is not not uh, not particularly a, a sort of a, a miracle. <laughs> the miracle is not ordinarily associated with with the shroud. We, we we think that it's it's a miracle in itself. It shows the central, uh, in sense, miracle of uh, uh, Christianity, and that this is the miracle of the resurrection. But uh, you know, as, as far as it being particularly healing and that sort of thing, I don't know. But it, it's uh, it served as a means of many people, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, becoming uh, you know followers of Christ, and we think that that's a miracle in itself. So it it has a, a powerful impact, and uh, you know I've known many people who have uh, become believers and uh, studying this image and realizing uh, the, what it, what it is, 
and uh, the implications it has uh, for uh, you know for uh, us individually and uh, for uh, for the world. Well, I know one individual, a, a lawyer from uh, uh, New York State, uh, Anthony Antonucci, who wrote a book. Essentially, he started out trying to debunk uh, the shroud. He was an avowed atheist, and after examining the shroud and writing the book, he became a devout Christian because of the evidence. Um, I guess final question, uh, we just have a minute, and that is, of all the tests that have been uh, performed on the Shroud, is there one still outstanding that you would like to see performed on the Shroud? Uh, well, there, there are a number. Uh, there's, there, uh, there are actually probably hundreds of uh, tests. Uh, there, there's still you know, um, many scientists and uh, investigators uh, interested in this and would like to do further studies. Uh, ones that uh, we'd particularly like to do is, is to get some some aspiration studies from the center of some of these uh, flowers, uh, you know, because there are still people uh, cast doubt on the the, uh, the flower images or the pollen findings and so forth. And uh, if we could get as, uh, aspiration studies from the center of some of these flowers and find a high correlation of pollen grain with the flower images, we think that this is hard evidence. There's already some evidence, as a Dr. Fry, who did not know there are flower images on there, did hit a couple of the flowers, and uh, there's a higher concentration of those uh, pollens on those slides. But uh, we would like to do more detailed studies, and the ones more convincing. All right, uh, uh, Dr. Alan Wanger, again, uh, co-author, along with his wife Mary, of The Shroud of Turin, An Adventure of Discovery. Thank you so much for your time, and uh, Kalapaska, Happy Easter. Okay, fine. Well, the, the same uh, to, to you, and uh, we, we hope people will look up our website at www.shroudcouncil.org. Shroud. And they can see a lot of evidence for themselves. Shroudcouncil.org. Thank you, Dr. Wanger. Fine. Thank you. All right, that's it until next week when we discuss the war on drugs with filmmaker Kevin Booth. Thanks, Dan Ellison. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite, I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.